please turn your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 12. We're continuing our series through the book of Zechariah, coming towards the end now. Zechariah chapter 12, and let me pray one more time. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock, my redeemer. May your people see you this morning through your preached word. In Jesus' name, amen. What are you looking at? What is it that is occupying your attention? Is it the news? Is one story of bad news after another almost every day from all around the world? Is it your social media feed as you scroll endlessly through whatever app you use? Are you looking at the case count each day or the latest change in rules in Abu Dhabi or the UAE? What are you looking at that is helping you to distract yourself maybe from the stress of the present season? from the trials that you're going through. What is it that is occupying your attention? Well, the book of Zechariah that we've been reading is a particular kind of literature, a kind of literature that invites us to look and see. Zechariah belongs to the genre of literature that we would call prophetic apocalyptic Uh, There are other books in the Bible that we see that speak in apocalyptic. Uh, The book of Revelation is, of course, one of them. We see apocalyptic literature in Daniel. And and Zechariah is an early version of this kind of literature. And what's happening in this kind of literature is that God is inviting us to look. The word apocalypse literally means unveiling. And what the Lord is doing here is he is pulling back the curtain, peeling back the curtain to show us unseen realities. To take our eyes away from what's going on around us and to show us that which seems hidden. To remind us of the fact that he is on his throne and to remind us of what he is doing in this world. We've seen the Lord do that throughout our series in Zechariah. And in today's passage, once again, that's what the Lord wants to do. The structure of today's text that we're going to look at unfolds with us looking in three different directions. The text causes us to look in three directions. And Zechariah wants us not to gaze upon our present circumstances, not to keep looking around frantically, but instead to look to the Lord at what he has done and what he is going to do for his people. And as we look in that way, we begin to feel great confidence in our mission. And at the same time, we must learn to feel great sorrow for our sin. So here's the first direction that this text calls us to look in. We look upwards. We look upwards and our first point, we marvel at our powerful creator. The text calls us to marvel 
at our powerful creator. Verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. So this chapter begins a new oracle in the second half of Zechariah. We've seen uh, that Zechariah can roughly be divided into two halves. In the first half we saw these eight visions uh, that the Lord showed the prophet. And then in the second half, from chapters 9 to 14, there are these two oracles. So chapters uh, 9 to 11 was the first oracle. And here chapter 12 to 14, we have this second oracle, which is basically a message from God. A message from God. And, and if we are to understand what the Lord is saying here, we have to remember the context once again. What is the situation of the people that Zechariah is speaking to? This was a broken community to whom the word of the Lord came. They were broken by their own sin. They were broken by the judgment that they had faced from God in the form of exile for their sin. They were broken by trials and afflictions. They're facing afflictions on every side, assaulted by enemies from all sides. There's bad news every day. They're struggling to look past their present circumstances to see how God is going to restore them. They came back to the land with the hope of restoration and, and rebuilding their lives, rebuilding their temple. But all seems lost. And in the midst of this, here comes the word of the Lord to encourage and remind them of God's plan for their salvation, of God's plan for restoration, of His plan to make all things new. And the question is, how do we know that this word will be fulfilled? We know that this word will be fulfilled because of the one who is speaking it. And so Zechariah wants us to lift our eyes away from our present circumstances, to God who is seated on His throne, who is speaking to His people and is certain to fulfill what He says. The one speaking and declaring these things is none other than the Lord, our Creator, the one who formed heaven and earth, our covenant Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within Him. He is sovereign he is in control and His word will accomplish all that He intends. Think about it. This is the God who when there was nothing and there was darkness, He spoke. And by His word, the universe comes into existence. He spoke and there are galaxies and stars, and the Milky Way, and the blazing sun. He founded the earth. He established our planet. Mountains, volcanoes, oceans teeming with life, beaches. And he took, took dirt, and he shaped that dirt and fashioned it. And he breathed life into that dirt. And what was the result? Living 
breathing image bearers of God. He formed the spirit of man within him. Human beings, the pinnacle of God's creation. Friends, in our present times, where are you looking? In whom are you trusting? In our season of trials, shall we not rely upon and trust in the word of this glorious, powerful creator God? In the midst of this pandemic that rages on and on through all of the trials and ups and downs of the past year, the, the trials that many of you are facing, beloved saints, through all of this season of transition and change, the world keeps changing. Even in our church, so much transition and change. Brothers and sisters, our Creator God is at work. And as we read and hear His promises preached from the book of Zechariah, through all the Bible, His word ought to lift our eyes upward beyond what is going on around us to see our Creator ruling over our world, working to bring His promises to pass. And so, brothers and sisters, first in our present circumstances, we look upwards and trust in our King and in His Word. And as we look upward to God on His throne, we can begin to look forwards to what the Lord has promised to do for us, His people. That brings us to the second direction that this text invites us to look. It calls us to look forward. First, we look upward and marvel at our powerful Creator. Second, we look forward and we are exhorted to mobilize for our victorious mission. We marvel at our powerful Creator. We mobilize for our victorious mission. Look at verses 2 to 9. Behold, that, that word means look, look, says the Lord. I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem." As we read that section from verses 2 to 9, there are three reasons why we can mobilize for our victorious mission. Three sets of promises from the Lord. First, that He will ensure His people's safety. 
Second, that God will empower his people's victory. And third, that he will establish his people's glory. But before we unpack those promises and look at this text in detail, we need to talk a little bit about interpretation and how I think we should understand this passage. You'll see the phrase, on that day, multiple times in this chapter, right? Verse 3, on that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone. Verse 4, on that day, declares the Lord. Verse 6, on that day, you see it again in verse 8. In fact, twice in verse 8, on that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the feeblest among them, on that day, shall be like David. Again, verse 9, on that day, I will seek to destroy all nations. This phrase is used seven times in chapter 12 alone and in fact is used 17 times in chapters 12, 13 and 14 together. And a key question of interpretation for this very common phrase, and we're trying to understand prophecies like this, is when does this day, that day, take place? When do these events take place? And this brings us back to the issue of interpretation uh, that we've wrestled with throughout our series through Zechariah, right from the beginning. And there are two main views. Right? So one view, which is very common among evangelicals, is to see these passages as speaking literally of events in the future concerning ethnic and national Israel. Right? So those who hold this view believe that passages like this, that day uh, is a future literal attack on an earthly city, right? on the earthly city of Jerusalem and on the nation of Israel, and that God in the future, when this attack happens, will act to deliver Israel. That's a very common view held by many Bible-believing, sincere Bible-believing evangelical Christians, and, and that might be uh, several of you. Uh, but I want to say uh, I'm not persuaded or convinced of that view. And uh, the reason that I find that view unconvincing uh, is because, as I've said before, first of all, I think the Old Testament and the prophets themselves hint at something greater. As we've read through uh, the book of Zechariah, we've seen again and again that as Zechariah is speaking of the future, he is calling us not just to expect a, a restoration of a physical nation state, but he's causing us to look forward, inviting us to look forward to something far greater, far grander that the Lord will do. These promises can't just be fulfilled in an earthly city with an earthly temple in an earthly piece of real estate called Israel. No, Zechariah is calling us to look forward to the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, to a temple that will never fail nor fall, that is not made of bricks and stones. These promises are fulfilled in a far greater way in a new and true Israel, which is Christ and his people, both Jew and Gentile, from all nations. That's, that's what the prophets themselves lead us to expect. The second reason that I'm not convinced that you know these are speaking of an earthly nation of Israel is that when I read the New Testament, I don't see the New Testament authors read the Old Testament in that way. 
I believe and I think the best model for us to follow in interpretation of the Old Testament is the Lord Jesus Christ and the example of the apostles. And I think when we read the New Testament authors, they don't lead us to expect a literal fulfillment in a national Israel. So the view that I take is the second view for how to interpret prophecy and these texts, which is also a very common view, in fact, which has been held throughout the history of the church. And that is that passages like Zechariah 12 to 14 are fulfilled in Christ and in his people. All who are in Christ are true Israel, which is us, the church. So we are not to expect a literal, physical fulfillment of these prophecies, but instead we read the language of that day as being fulfilled in three movements. They are initially fulfilled, the uh, uh, promises, the, uh, the fulfillment of these promises is inaugurated in the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, bringing salvation. The promises continue to be fulfilled throughout this current age in which Jesus' kingdom, which he inaugurated, is advancing through the church, the true Israel of God. And then the promises will be finally fulfilled and consummated in Christ's second coming when he brings salvation for his people and judgment on those who rebel against him. And, and one common way of thinking of this, I really like this illustration, is to think of it as uh, two mountain peaks. All right. So the prophets in the Old Testament are looking in this direction and think of you know two mountain peaks back to back. And, and what do they see? They see, when you're looking in this way, they see both what's on both peaks coalesce as one. So what they see is what happens in the first coming of Christ and in the second coming of Christ and everything in between. It's all one complex foreseeing, right? But when Jesus comes, he brings us to see that really in God's plan, this takes place in an unexpected way. That there's two poles in which the promises are fulfilled. Two peaks in his first coming and his second coming. And there's all of this time in between. And we get this bird's eye view now, which the prophets didn't necessarily completely have. So that's one helpful way to think about it and illustrate it. But there are several examples I can show you. In the New Testament, we see this over and over again for how the Old Testament is fulfilled. Just a couple of examples. Think of the rebuilding of the temple. We've seen Zechariah promise and speak about the rebuilding of God's temple. We saw that in Zechariah 4. We'll see that again in Zechariah 14. And even as Zechariah speaks, we're led to expect that this temple will be so glorious and un unimaginably great, far beyond uh, any expectation. Well, when we come to the New Testament, how do we see this temple rebuilding fulfilled? First, we see that Jesus himself is God's temple. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. So there's an initial fulfillment in his first coming. He is God's temple. Then we see in the New Testament that we in Christ are God's temple. We are God's dwelling place. Jesus himself is the cornerstone and we are living stones being built up into a spiritual dwelling for God. We are God's temple. 
And then as we come to the end of the New Testament, we see that finally the entire world is God's temple. All of heaven and earth is God's kingdom, God's temple, and his temple is made up of us, his people. That's how the New Testament authors see these promises fulfilled. We see that again with the resurrection of the dead. So maybe you've read this famous passage in Ezekiel with its beautiful imagery, Ezekiel chapter 37, where the prophet Ezekiel is dropped into this valley of dry bones and and the Lord tells him to speak and and to preach. And, And as he preaches, the Spirit of the Lord comes and there's a complete resurrection of these bones. There's a resurrection from the dead. It's very interesting in Ezekiel's context, the resurrection from the dead refers to the restoration of Israel. And as we come to the New Testament, what do we see? How is the resurrection of the dead fulfilled? Well, it's initially fulfilled in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is God's Son. He is true Israel. And He dies a death for sinners on behalf of God's people. He rises from the dead. And then the resurrection continues to be fulfilled as the Lord calls out sinners from darkness to light. He brings us from death to life spiritually. And the resurrection from the dead will be finally fulfilled in Jesus' second coming. When all who are his will be raised from the dead glorious forever. So we see that we are led to expect the fulfillment of these prophecies in these, in this, in these ways. We've already seen this in other texts in Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 2 verse 11. It says when God establishes the new Jerusalem, there'll be the bringing in of the nations. We see that happening today. That's why ECC, we are a church making disciples from the nations. And so friends, I want to submit that we must use this same lens to understand the fulfillment of these promises in Zechariah 12 as well. Jesus is true Israel. In him, we the church are God's people. We become true Israel and the true Jerusalem in whom all God's promises are fulfilled. That's why, for example, the Apostle Paul calls the church the the Israel of God in Galatians 6.16. So with that lens, let's look again at Zechariah 12 verses 2 to 9 which I said calls us to mobilize for our victorious mission by looking forward to what God is doing. What does God promise to do here? What are the reasons he gives us to mobilize for mission? Well, first, he promises to establish our safety. God will ensure our safety. Look at verses 2 to 4. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness." So God's people are called to fix our eyes on God's promises while God keeps his eyes open towards us and he strikes the enemies of his people with blindness so that they can't see. 
Here we find Judah and Jerusalem, the people of God, besieged, assaulted on every side. But the Lord himself acts to protect his people, to ensure their safety from all who come against them. And we see this with different images. First, the enemies who who come against Jerusalem are confused. They're left like they've had an intoxicating alcoholic drink and they're stumbling and reeling. Then they injure and gash themselves. That's the second image, verse 3. It's like they've come to lift a heavy stone and the heavy stone has crushed them. Their attempt to gather against the people of God has failed. The Lord strikes the horses with panic and blindness and the riders with madness. The Lord himself acts acts to destroy those who attack his people. Verse 9. On that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. He is righteous in justice and will bring justice upon those who attack his people. Friends, the church has been besieged by enemies in every age, on every side, and yet we endure. If you look throughout church history, as one reader put it, Christians have been assaulted, this author says, through lying, reviling, slander, blasphemy, whipping, scourging, burning, hanging, crucifying, casting to wild beasts, and every conceivable form of cruelty. You know, in the last hour, a brother or sister in Christ somewhere in the world has been put to death because of their love for Jesus. There are Christians dying all around the world right now because of their faith in Christ and because they have been unashamed to share the gospel with others. It's not just Christians in history and around the world, is it? Even some of you, beloved brothers and sisters, some of you face rejection from family, from friends, You face hostility at work, persecution from those who are your own flesh and blood for the sake of the name of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, take heart. Don't give up. The Lord ultimately protects us. Even death is not the end for those who are in Christ. And the church, as the people of God, will continue on no matter what threats are brought against her so we can mobilize for our mission despite persecution and opposition we can mobilize to see the gospel advance because we know that our righteous and omnipotent God is our refuge and no matter how we are persecuted or afflicted our God will reign victorious in the end his mission will be victorious not only does he ensure his people's safety but he also empowers our victory. Look at verses 5 and 6. The clans of Judah shall then say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts their God. On that day I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. Despite the attacks and the onslaughts of the kingdom of darkness, the Lord ensures that his kingdom advances. 
Not only does he make the enemy's attacks useless, he in fact turns our besieged position into an invincible advance. And his people advance to the right and left like wildfire. Friends, these promises are fulfilled as the gospel advances like wildfire through the mission of the church, through you and me. We've seen this turn from being besieged to advancing in victory being fulfilled in the New Testament already. Think about the cross. They were gathered in Jerusalem. The nations were gathered in Jerusalem against the one who is true Israel himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostles uh, quote Psalm 2 in their prayer in Acts chapter 4. Listen to this, uh, verses 25 to 27 of Acts 4. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. They gathered together against Jesus. Jesus was besieged. And yet even through his death, Jesus defeats the powers of darkness. He rose again victorious. And he sends his spirit down like fire on Pentecost. And then we see the gospel advance like wildfire through the advance of the church in the book of Acts and for 2,000 years of church history. Friends, nothing can stop the advance of the gospel. Nothing can hinder the advance of the mission of Christ's church. Not persecution, not pandemics nor anything else will keep the Lord from fulfilling his mission to save his people. We continue to conquer to the left and to the right as the gospel shines light and burns bright in a darkened world. So dear saint, do you feel weak? Do you feel weary or weighed down? Maybe you feel inadequate. Maybe you feel exhausted in this present season. Maybe you just feel overwhelmed, discouraged. Have you begun to disengage from this mission just out of weariness? ECC, I speak to us as a church, are we growing weary from the setbacks? Let's say to ourselves, like the inhabitants of Judah in verse 5, Our strength is through the Lord, our God. You know, a few years ago, when I was in seminary, I, uh, in God's providence, I was having dinner with the man who was the chief justice of the Supreme Court of India at that time. His name was Altamas Kabir, and he was a Bengali Muslim. And, you know, I I was talking to him about my faith. And he asked me, where, where are you studying? So you're you know, studying to be a pastor. Where are you studying? I said, I'm studying at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And he said, oh, Baptist. Well, William Carey was a Baptist. He said, we still use uh, Carey's grammar of the Bengali language in his Bengali dictionary. Do you know that Carey faced great trials in his mission, in the mission that God called him to? 
He went to India in 1792 and it was unthinkably hard. They lost their five-year-old son to malaria and Carrie's wife went insane as a result. She lost her mind. It took seven years before Carrie saw even one person come to faith in Christ and embrace Jesus as Lord. And in the midst of all of his trials and afflictions, William Carey could speak in this way. Listen to this. Though I were deserted by all and persecuted by all, yet my faith fixed on that sure word would overcome every trial. God's cause will triumph. The work to which God is calling us is not one in which we work with uncertainty. We are not afraid of the result. Christ must reign until Satan has not one inch of territory. God will give us the victory. God will give us the victory, dear friends. Listen once again to your king's call to mobilize and stay on mission. I know it's hard. I know we grow weary. I I feel it myself. And I think about just this past week, last weekend. You know, I have a, a friend that I've been trying to share the gospel with for the last three years. We used to meet regularly, keep sharing the gospel. He he understands. He he can articulate the gospel better than some Christians that I know. All right. Uh, we lost touch a little bit during the pandemic. It was hard to meet. You know, and then we try to get together. He cancels. You know, I try. He tries to reach me. I'm busy. Well, finally, we we managed to get an appointment set. And then the day came, and evening. And that day, I was just exhausted. I was telling Nishika, I, sweetheart, I just don't think I have energy for this. And, you know, the Lord is so gracious. And He gives us strength. And so we finally end up sitting down in this restaurant, me and Ankles. And my friend brought another friend whom I haven't met before. And, you know, we're sitting there and he says, Aubrey, you know, you, you, we used to talk a lot about, you know, uh, how Jesus is both God and he's man. And, and you know, the, the Trinity, Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Can you explain it to this guy also? I was like, oh, great. And the Lord gives me the strength. Even in exhaustion, he gives us the words. Friends, our strength is through the Lord our God. The Lord has a plan for the salvation of His people. He is renewing all things. Into this broken community in Judah, He promised the return of His King. He promised that He would establish them in glory. And that's what the Lord does. He ensures our safety. He empowers our victory. And He establishes us in glory. Look at verse seven, verses 7 to 8. The Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. God has promised salvation, and He will accomplish it. Here we are seeing that even the weak, the feeblest in the kingdom of God will share the glory of the king. And then we see this surprising verse here in the Old Testament. Zechariah says, verse 8, that the house of David shall be like God. In other words, 
Zechariah is prophesying that there would come a king from the line of David whose rule would essentially be the rule of God himself. Friends, that king has come. His glorious rule and reign has already been inaugurated. He reigns right now over this world, over our church, over your life and mine. For this is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, from the line of David, yet eternally God the Son. The Lord has accomplished our salvation through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he causes us to grow from one degree of glory into another, become more and more like Jesus as we grow in this Christian life until one day we will be completely glorified, perfect, sharing his perfect glory forever. And so this text brings us much hope and confidence this morning, doesn't it? We looked upwards and marveled at our powerful creator. We've looked forwards and we're encouraged to mobilize for our victorious mission. But the text surprises us with one more call to look. So you've got to ask the question, how does the Lord, how does our powerful creator accomplish our victory? How does he ensure his people's safety, empower our victory, and establish our glory? And there's a shocking answer to this question. A sudden twist in the text for which we have to look one more time as Zechariah beckons us to look to the cross. We've looked upwards and marveled at our powerful creator. We've looked forwards as we mobilize for our victorious mission. But now we look to the cross and mourn over our pierced Savior. Verses 10 to 14. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself. The family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the Shimeites by themselves, by itself and their wives by themselves. And all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. So this is like, you know, the scene at the end of a battle. There's been a glorious battle fought. There's been a mighty victory accomplished. And just as the victors, the good guys, are celebrating, suddenly the camera zooms in and focuses on what it cost. It's cost the life of the great commander and hero and king. And all of a sudden, these great shouts of victory 
are replaced by bitter mourning and wailing for the hero of the battle, the king and commander has been pierced. This is some serious mourning and wailing. The text says, verse 10, it's like the mourning over an only son, mourning over a firstborn. I don't know if you've been to, to the funeral of an only son or a firstborn. It's been, that's, that's some pretty heavy mourning. But that's not the shocking twist in the text, friends. The shocking twist in the text is that this pierced one, this one who has been pierced is God himself. And he has been pierced not by enemies, but by his own people, the ones whom he came to save and deliver. They shall look on me whom they have pierced. We saw this theme in Zechariah 11 as well, where the sheep rejected their own shepherd. We see it here again. The people have pierced their Savior and their God. But how is it possible? How can it be possible that God Almighty, the Creator God, the Lord Himself, would be pierced? And there we enter into the great mystery of the incarnation and the Christian faith. The mystery is this, that God the Son, the eternal Son, took on flesh so that He is fully God and fully man, our Lord Jesus Christ. And in and through His human nature, He experiences death. He is pierced. You see, the mourning in verses 12 to 14 names two family lines. The line of David, and of course Nathan comes from that line, and the line of Levi, from whom the family of Shimei comes. And that's the royal line of David and the priestly line of Levi. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, we find one who is eternally God, now come in the flesh as the perfect priest king. He is born in the house of David, born as the rightful king of his people, though he always existed as the king of creation. He fulfilled every promise and prophecy in God's word concerning himself and ultimately fulfilled this prophecy in his death. We've seen in verse 8 that the house of David would be as God. And here we see that this one who is pierced is God himself. The son of David is the son of God and he is pierced. You know, I was saying prophecies have two poles of fulfillment, these two peaks. We see them fulfilled in the first coming of Christ and then in his second coming. And this is a great example. This verse is mentioned twice in the New Testament. It was fulfilled in Jesus' death, John 19. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. Look at verse 37. Again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. John is quoting Zechariah 12. And it will be fulfilled again in Jesus' second coming. Verse, uh, Revelation 1.7 Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And the question is, why was Jesus, God the Son, the perfect man, 
Why was he pierced? The answer, friends, is that he was pierced for you and me. He was pierced by us and for us. Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Our priest, king, and our God was pierced for your sin and for my sin. Jesus, God the Son, made flesh, went to the cross for our sin as our representative, as our substitute, bearing the judgment that sinners deserve, absorbing the fire of God's wrath that should have fallen upon us, so that by Him being pierced, we might be forgiven. By Him being pierced, we might be protected from God's judgment. By Him being pierced, we might be saved. What is the response that this should elicit from us? How shall we respond to the one who was pierced by us, for us? It's by repentance and sorrow and mourning over our sin. That's what the text calls us to. Because even as we look to the cross, we look inward and see how much wicked sinners like us deserve. We see that we need the cross. We see that our purification could only be accomplished by our pierced Savior. And we mourn. You know, one of the sad truths is we've lost the place for sorrow and mourning in contemporary evangelical Christianity. You know, we rightly criticize and reject the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel as a fake gospel. But there's another cheapened gospel that has made its way into our ranks. And this is the happy, clappy gospel of evangelicals that says if you follow Jesus, there's no place for sorrow, there's no need to lament, there's no need to be sad, just happy, sappy, clappy all the time. We see it in, in some of our contemporary Christian songs. There's no place for penitence. Sometimes, you know, people think, oh, why are we singing sad songs? These old songs are so sad. Maybe some of you felt that this morning. Why are all the songs have this mournful tone? Why not only happy, joyful songs? Oh, pastor, I just want to be happy. I just want to have happy feelings. Friends, I've got news for you. The Christian life begins with sorrow. Sorrow over your own sin. Sorrow over what it cost to purchase your cleansing and forgiveness. It begins with mourning and brokenness and repentance that the Son of God Himself had to die to save me. And may I dare suggest that if you've never truly mourned over your sin, if you've never known this kind of bitter sorrow for the cost of your sin, it's possible that you might not truly know the Lord. And I want to warn you and warn all of us that if we don't mourn over our sin today, if you don't mourn today in repentance, there is coming another day of mourning when you will look at the pierced one, when he comes again, and you won't be mourning in repentance on that day, it will be mourning because judgment has come and there is no opportunity for repentance. So how do we come to repentance? Well, it's first and foremost the work of God. 
I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me whom they have pierced, they shall mourn. The God who was pierced for our salvation applies this salvation to us by graciously moving us individually and corporately to pray for mercy and to look at the pierced one and mourn in repentance. Oh, I pray that he would pour out the spirit of grace and plea for mercy on you today. He works in our hearts through his word and enables us to look and see Jesus. So look again, dear Christian, brother or sister, look again at the pierced Savior whose suffering purchased your salvation. Look again at his pierced side and mourn again for what he has given you. I want to call you dear non-Christian friend. Look, look to the pierced one. He stands here this morning still bearing the wounds of his suffering for sinners and calling you to look Look at his pierced side and mourn. Look to him. Look to the cross in faith and be saved from sin. Dear children, I want to encourage you. Look. Look, little ones. Look to Jesus. Look to the Jesus who was pierced to save sinners like you, even little children from their sin. You know, I remember over 16 years ago when I first looked I looked at the Savior who was pierced for me and the tears came streaming down in repentance. It reminds me of that marvelous book, Pilgrim's Progress, where this man named Christian is walking around, you know, carrying this heavy burden on his back and he's wondering how will he be relieved of this burden? How will he be relieved? And and through many pointers, he finally finds this way to this mound. And on this mound, he sees and he looks at a cross and his burden falls away. And he says, he has given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. And the narrator tells us, then he stood still a while to look and wonder. For it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked therefore and looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks. The pierced one gives us, gives us rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Dear friend, have you looked